in your Bibles this evening to the book of Jonah. Uh, when I pick back up the um, series of messages on major messages from the minor prophets that we started uh, sometime last fall, I believe it was, uh, little did I know that the Common Grounds class, I, I've, I've been, I'm looking at those minor prophets not in their Bible order, but I'm looking at them in their in their uh, chronological order in history. And, uh, and so, not following the, the book order in the Bible, uh, this next study was going to be in the, in the life of Jonah. And uh, I didn't realize until after I had uh, uh, prepared for that message last week that the Common Grounds class, which is the class, the BSF class I attend on Sundays, um, they, they were studying Jonah last Sunday and this morning uh, on the same two Sundays that uh, we're looking at Jonah on Sunday evenings. And so uh, that was not done on purpose or, or by plan, uh, at least not my plan, but um, I'm glad that the Common Grounds class are studying some of the prophets of the Old Testament and learning some biblical principles of life from some of the Old Testament preachers. Uh, we began to look at this fish story last uh, Sunday evening, looked at the first couple of chapters of Jonah, the um, most famous fish story in the history of mankind, I think, and certainly uh, the story in the Bible that is most maligned and scoffed at by unbelievers and skeptics is this fish story. And unfortunately, now, that it's easy in, in our Christianity to think that it's just a fish story and uh, Jonah and the whale but the profound lessons Jonah was a messed up preacher you know what we learn from Jonah is how not to do things he messed up twice and God used him messing up twice to teach him and then by putting it in the word of God to teach us two important lessons uh, from a, uh, a reluctant prophet. And we learned last week that Jonah had to learn how to trust God. That God's ideas are always best. And, uh, and Jonah didn't believe that. Jonah thought God's idea was, uh, was out of step with what needed to be done. So he took matters in his own hands. And he did what he wanted to do. And he had to learn a hard lesson. He learned a lesson that... God's ideas are better than man's ideas. And it, it cost him a lot to learn that lesson. Uh, he almost died learning that lesson. And, uh, and as a result of a prayer meeting at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea, God heard and answered his prayer and sent a whale to rescue him. Sometimes the story is told in such a way that people get the idea that the whale was the punishment. The whale wasn't the judgment from God. It was the answer to Jonah's prayer that rescued Jonah from dying under the hand of a judging God. And God answered his prayer, prepared a fish, sent it down there to pick him up, bring him back to dry ground so he could get on with what God's idea was all about. And Jonah had a hard time learning that lesson. He was not wanting to do what God wanted him to do. And God had to use some drastic means that almost killed Jonah to teach Jonah, you need to learn how to trust God's ideas. You need to learn how to put your trust in God before he puts you through a horrible ordeal to make you uh, uh, 
believe that God's ideas are better than, than yours. And, and so that was chapters 1 and 2. We come to chapter 3, and chapter 3 provides for us an, an amazing revival story. It's been called the greatest revival story in the history of humanity. Uh, God, in chapter 3, is going to repeat the original instructions he gave to Jonah. He had told Jonah where to go, what to preach, and what was going to happen if they didn't listen. And Jonah wouldn't go. When, when God got his attention, and Jonah realized God's idea was best, God repeated the instructions and sent Jonah to do what he had originally told him to do. And the result was remarkable. I mean, this is the Assyrian Empire. Uh, this was the, the people that uh, were the most uh, cruel, atrocious people uh, in the world at that time, a feared people. And God is sending him with a message. I want you to see something about this message. Look at chapter 3 and verse number 2. God said, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. What I told you to preach to begin with. So what Jonah ends up going and preaching is exactly what God told him to preach. God gives his preachers the message that he wants to preach. That he wants them to preach. And, and the Bible, of course, they didn't have the Bible then. They had very little of the Bible then. And so oftentimes God gave them directly, direct revelation to them and told them what to do, what to go preach. We live in a day where, where we have a completed canon of Scripture and God's instruction to preachers today is preach the Word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering doctrine. We're, we have a, a book, a library of 66 books, and we're told to preach the Word that God has already delivered. So Jonah was in a little bit of a different day. God gave him a direct message. He was to go preach that message. If you go back to chapter 1... And verse number 2 of chapter 1, God said, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it. His message is going to be a negative message. His message is going to be a message about judgment. The, God said to him, For their wickedness is come up before me. God is aware of the depravity and wickedness of the Assyrian Empire and of the people that made up that empire. And so God gives Jonah a sermon, a message. The message is going to be one in which he will cry against that people and uh, because of their wickedness. And then if you go back over to chapter 3, verse number 4, he actually goes into the city, huge city. He goes into the city a, a day's journey. And, and the Bible says he cried and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So it was a message of judgment. It was a message of payment for sin, punishment for sin. And so God gave Jonah a message. The message was to a people in wickedness and rebellion. It was because of their wickedness that God sent Jonah to them to preach the message. And his message is going to be a negative message crying against that people and announcing to them the imminent judgment of God. They've got 40 days left to live. And God's going to wipe them out. And so when Jonah went back, to, finally went to Nineveh, he took this message, and this is the message that he delivered to the people of Nineveh. 
It was 775 years before Christ. And the result of Jonah's preaching was the greatest revival that has perhaps ever been seen in the history of humanity. This is a huge city. God even numbers them in the end of chapter 4. He speaks of them as a a people, a city of three score thousand persons that cannot discern their right hand from their left, which is usually understood as being uh, whatever that number would be, six score, uh, six score thousand children. This is a, you add in the moms and the dads, this is a huge city. And chapter 3 records for us an amazing revival. He goes in and he and he preaches the message that God had preached, uh, had told him to preach. And the result of him preaching that message was remarkable. Verse number 5 of chapter 3 tells us that the people of Nineveh believed God. Notice, they believed the message. That's great. That, that's, you know, uh, book of John, the gospel of John talks about whosoever believeth shall be saved. I mean, believing. That's core of the gospel message. They believed the message in verse number, uh, verse number 5. And then in verse number 6 to 8, what they believed and their intensity of belief impacted them emotionally. I mean, this was not just a, a flippant thought that crossed their mind. Uh, oh, yeah, I believe that. Uh, this impacted them. Verse number 6 says, the word of God came to the king. And he arose from his throne and he laid his robe from him and he covered him with sackcloth and he set in ashes and he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by decree of the king and his nobles saying, let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and will turn away from his fierce anger and that we perish not? I mean, this was a, this was a shocking message of judgment, so much so that the king made an announcement and the people of the city were impacted emotionally. They fasted. They stopped eating. They stopped going through the routine of life. They weren't doing their normal routine of living. They were focused on God. They were focused on judgment. They were fo focused on wickedness and the judgment of God against wickedness. And, and they knew that they were faced with 40 days and then they were all going to die. And they believed it. And, and they got emotionally wrapped up in the message that Jonah preached. But the, the thing that, that really uh, reveals the degree to which this message, this sermon impacted their lives is that verse number, verse number 8 says that they, they turned everyone from his evil way. Turn everyone from his evil way. And verse 10 says, God saw their works. They believed. They believed to the point that emotionally it, 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 it startled them and it changed their life. And the outcome of that was such a changed life that God saw what they began to do, how they began to live as a result of believing the message that God withheld his judgment and didn't kill the inhabitants of the city. A whole city saved. That is a huge revival. A sermon 
on certain judgment because of wicked sin. And a message was believed to the degree that it shattered their view of themselves. They fasted and they sought God and they, and, and they changed everything about the routine of life as they were focusing on God. And they started living according to the principles that Jonah had preached. They began to obey God. God saw their works. God turned from that which he was going to do and did not send the judgment. What a story. What a story of revival. What a story of recognizing that the message of God for preachers to preach brings people face to face with the reality of their sinfulness, the certainty of judgment, and brings them to the point of salvation, deliverance, being forgiven for what they have done. But that's not the end of the story. Chapter 4 is often the most ignored part of the story of Jonah. And yet chapter 4 is the whole reason for the story of Jonah. It, it really capsulizes the second major lesson of the book of Jonah. The first lesson was we need to learn how to trust God. God's ideas are always the best ideas. We need to learn to trust that. But the second lesson is the lesson we need to learn how to care like God cares. I was... Uh, talking to a gentleman that uh, recently got saved uh, just a couple weeks ago. Uh, he had come to me. He's been coming every Sunday. Uh, Nick uh, is, uh, is uh, mentoring him with the Sequoia program, and they're having just a phenomenal time of growth. And, um, and he came to me, this, this gentleman came to me uh, a couple weeks ago, I think it was last Sunday, and, uh, and he told me he, he had heard a preacher, and he had preached that, um, that there are people who claim to be Christians who claimed to have prayed a sinner's prayer. And yet, when judgment day comes, they're going to find out that they weren't saved at all. And he looked at me and he said, how can I know that I'm saved? Could that be me? Could I have prayed a sinner's prayer and end up not saved? And that question goes in two directions. Did I ever get saved? Or could I lose what I've got? And so we chatted for a few moments after the service. And I said, listen, I said, uh, I said, what that preacher said that you just described to me is absolutely true. Jesus said on the Sermon of the Mount that on Judgment Day, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? We taught Sunday school. We preached. We, we, we went out and we did all kinds of great and wonderful works in your name. And Jesus said, I'm going to say to them, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. I said, Jesus is describing those who say they're Christians, who may have gone through the motions, or maybe like I was as a child when someone gave me a, a prayer to pray, they gave me words to say, and they told me that that made me a Christian. And it wasn't until into my teen years that I realized I had never been saved. I said, there, there will be people like that. And Jesus said, many people like that. And, and then I encouraged him to consider 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, where the Apostle Paul, writing to a church family, people that he had preached the gospel to, he had prayed with them when they got saved. He had planted the church. And then he wrote to them in 2 Corinthians, and at the end of the letter, he, he was scratching his head. He was wondering, are these people even saved? And he challenged them. He said, examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Examine your life. 
Are you really saved? Or are you a reprobate? And so I told this young, I said, yeah, it's, that's what that preacher preached is true. I said, so how do we know we're saved? It's not by remembering a prayer that we prayed. I said, read 1 John this week. 1 John ends by saying, These things have I written to you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that you have eternal life. Whatever is in 1 John was written so that a person could read that and know that they're really saved. And there's nothing in 1 John chapters 1 through the middle of chapter 5 that says anything about remembering a prayer or a certain set of words that were said. But it's all about the impact of God on your life. The next Sunday rolled around and this gentleman came to me and he says, Hey, I read First John this week. Wow. He said, I know I'm saved. God changed my life. That's what happened in Nineveh. God saw the change in their lives and knew it was real. It was genuine. Genuine salvation changes people's lives. There's the old country preacher used to say it. If you're either, if you're saved, you're either changed, chastised, or casketized. <laughs> you're either changed or, or, or God is chastening you to change you, or God has killed you and taken you to heaven because he can't trust you on earth any longer. And he puts you in a casket. God saw their works. There was a genuine revival in Nineveh. A whole city was changed. And the judgment of God that would eventually fall on the Assyrian capital city of Nineveh was postponed for 150 years. I wonder how many generations grew up during that 150 years. Before the country was wicked enough again for God to judge the country and destroy it. This is a great revival. You would think Jonah would be on the top of his game excited about what God did. What he preached and the powerful impact of the message that God gave him to deliver. But such is not the case. In chapter 4 verse 1. We read, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. This is the overlooked chapter, but it's the essence of why we have Jonah in our Bible. It's this second lesson. Sometimes God doesn't meet your standard of who you think God ought to be. And that's the first experience that, that, uh, that we learn from this fourth chapter that Jonah's expectation of God didn't meet his standard. He wanted a God who would wipe out Nineveh. And when God didn't wipe out Nineveh, Jonah was ticked off. He was angry at God. He was angry because God didn't do what he wanted God to do. Wow. Important lesson for all of us to learn, isn't it? 
not to get angry with God when he doesn't do what we think he ought to do. Verse number 2, the Bible says he prayed unto the Lord. He actually prayed. He was mad. He was ticked off at God. He was very angry. And he went to God in prayer. And he says, God, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? I knew you might do this. That's why I didn't go in the first place. Therefore, I fled before the end of Tarshish. For I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth thee of the evil. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me. It's better for me to die than to live. Jonah wanted a God who was going to destroy the Assyrian people. Why did he want a God like that? That only opens up speculation and questions. We don't know. God didn't tell us why. The speculation that makes most sense to me is what I shared last week as to why Jonah ran the opposite direction, quit the ministry, ran the opposite direction, said, I'm not gone, I'm not going to deliver this message. That perhaps it was because as a prophet he knew that the Assyrians were destined to destroy his own country, his own people. And he wanted God to destroy them in 40 days. To save his own nation, Israel. Whether that's the, the, the way it worked out, we don't know for sure. That's speculation. But we do know that Jonah ran in the opposite direction because he knew God just might save them if they hear the message that God gave him to preach. And he did not want God to save them. He wanted a God who would punish rather than forgive. That reminds me of something really, really important. And that is whenever I don't know God, I am bound to mess up. It's really important to know God, to know his attributes to know his names, to know his character, uh, to know the fullness of what the Bible reveals about the nature of God. It seems that there are times in history when Christians emphasize one attribute and diminish attention on another attribute, and they get a distorted view of God. Jonah had a distorted view of God. He wanted God to fit his standard of what he wanted God to be. God didn't fit that standard. We need to learn the attributes of God and understand what God is like. Is he a God of judgment? Oh, yes. We're meditating this week on the name Jehovah Nekah. He's the God who smites. Yes, that's a part of God's attributes. That's a part of God's nature. That's a part of the balance and the fullness of the, of the divine nature of God. And if I ignore that attribute and exalt another attribute, I've got a distorted view of God. If I deny this attribute and exalt this, the, the, the challenge in life is to get to know God. You'll only get to know God by studying His attributes, by studying His names. That's the secret reason behind our prayer sheets and why every week there are two attributes of God and one name of God and they rotate 
in a, in a, a sequence. And, and if you, as a member of CBC, use the prayer sheets the church provides for you and, and you learn the attributes of God and you learn the names of God, that builds your, your understanding of the nature and character of God so that you're not like Jonah that doesn't understand the fullness of God's nature and the attributes of God. I was accused once by somebody who was attending church here and um, he accused me of never preaching on the attributes of God. He accused me of not knowing how to preach because I did not preach Calvinism and I did not preach the attributes of God. Those were the two things that, that he accused me of. And yet every week, every week, we try to emphasize and talk about the attributes and the names of God. Why? That's foundational to our Christian character. If I'm going to be like God, that must grow out of my understanding of who God is and what he's like. And that's why we do that. That's why I initiated that many years ago and have asked all of our ministries to Give out those sheets. Go over them in class with whoever is in your ministry. Talk about those things. Promote those things. That's a part of my responsibility in the theological training of the membership of Community Baptist Church regarding the doctrine of God. Do we know God? Jonah didn't do a good job at knowing God. He wanted a God that didn't. He wanted a God that met his standard, and God didn't do that. Here's a second thought. When God drives his message home to you, you find yourself face-to-face with God to learn who he is. How did God drive his message home to Jonah? God uses two techniques that I think are great techniques. You know, the, the more I learn, the more I observe of God and how God imparts truth and how God deals with people, the more impressed I am by the, by the amazing wisdom of our God. He had two techniques he used to get a hold of Jonah's heart and to teach Jonah a lesson. The lesson was all about loving people that are different from you. Loving people that you would rather see go to hell then get saved. How did God get a hold of Jonah's heart and challenge him to care about people? Well, there are two simple, simple techniques. The first one is that he asked questions. Look in verse number four of chapter four. God said to, 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 um, to Jonah, then saith the Lord, doest thou well to be angry? I love it. I, I love I love watching Jesus ask questions. What a technique Jesus used in his teaching ministry. And you know, God never asks a question because he doesn't know the answer. You ever thought about that? God never asks a question because he's ignorant. He asks questions because I'm ignorant, but don't know it. And so he asks a question to force me to think about what the answer to that question is, so I can learn something that I don't understand. God looked at Jonah and said, do you well to be angry, Jonah? And God is probing 
the heart of Jonah. Here's Jonah, angry, bitter, mad. And God begins to probe into his heart. Jonah doesn't get it. He justifies his behavior. Doest thou well to be angry? Verse number 5, so Jonah went out of the uh, city and sat down on the east side of the city, made a booth and sat under it in the shadow till he might see what would become of the city. He, he just, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't taking God's question and learning something of truth from it. He justifies his behavior. He goes outside the city and he builds the booth and he sits down hoping to watch the fire of God annihilate the Assyrian people. So God prepares some tools. In verse number 6, he prepared a gourd. Verse number 7, he prepared a worm. And in verse number 8, he prepared a vehement east wind. God prepared some, some object lessons that he will use in challenging Jonah. He prepared a gourd and a worm and a wind. And in the, the, the gourd grew up and, and provided shadow, shelter. That's a particular kind of a plant that was common in that part of the world. It was got a couple of different names. It usually will grow 8 to 10 feet tall in just a very few number of days in the right conditions. So he plants this gourd. The gourd grows up very quickly, provides shadow in this hot sun, and he sits there under the shadow uh, of, of the... Uh, and it, it delivers him from his grief. So Jonah was exceeding glad for the gourd, verse 6 ends and says. So God prepared the worm. The worm uh, ate into the, the stalk of the plant, and the plant dropped over dead, withered. And, and the sun came up, and there was no shade, and the vehement east wind, and the sun beat upon him. The wind blew upon him. He fainted. He wished he could die. He said, it is better for me to die than to live, in verse number 8. And God said to Jonah, Doest thou well to be angry because the gourd died? He continues to drill into his heart. Jonah still doesn't get it. He feels justified at his anger. Verse number 9, he said, I do well to be angry, even unto death. He looks at God and says, I have a right to be angry. You didn't do what I thought you ought to do in Nineveh. The gourd that, that brought me a little bit of relief from the sun and the wind is gone. Yeah, I have every right to be angry, God. I have a right to die. <laughs> it's a sorry preacher. But the only thing we learn from Jonah is how not to do things. And so God makes comparisons, and that's the second technique. God asks questions to challenge his thinking. And then God made comparisons to help him see what God saw. In verse number 10, the Lord said, Thou hast had pity on the gourd. And in the language, as I understand it, the, the word thou is emphatic. Thou hast had pity. Verse number 11, God said, should not I spare Nineveh? And the word I is the emphatic word in, in verse number 11. God is comparing thou and I. He's comparing Jonah with himself. 
He said, you had pity on a gourd. And then interestingly enough, he uses the same Hebrew word. It's translated pity and it's translated spare. Jonah had pity. God's pity called him to spare the Assyrians. And both from the same Hebrew word. God is comparing Jonah with himself. You had pity. Why shouldn't I have pity? You had pity on a gourd. I had pity on human beings. God is comparing each of their pity one against the other. Learn that the problem is always rooted in my difference from the character of God. When God compares me to himself, that helps me understand the error of my ways. That's why it's so important to study the names and attributes of God. You have to know God. Because God will continually throughout your life cause you to compare yourself to himself. To help you and I know where we fall short of the very character of God. So God makes comparisons. Jonah compared himself, or God compared Jonah's compassion on a gourd in verse number 10. Thou hast had pity on the gourd. You didn't labor for the gourd. You didn't make the gourd grow. The gourd was temporal, only lasted for a couple of days. And you had nothing to do with producing it. And yet you love that temporal gourd because it gives you a little bit of relief. Talk about selfish joy. I have pity on the gourd because it brings me relief from the hot sun and the desert wind. And I feel I have a right to be angry when the gourd died. And God says, really? Really? You really think you have a right to be all bent out of shape because some temporal plant that only lasts for a couple of days is gone and you didn't, you didn't hover over it? You, you didn't plant it? You didn't water it? You didn't weed it? You didn't nurture it? It had nothing to do with you other than what you can get out of it. And you think you have a right to be angry over the loss of that gourd? Well, if you have a right to be angry over that gourd, then don't you think I have a right to have compassion on human beings that I created, people that I nurtured, people that I gave life to, People that I care about. Don't you think I have a right? Verse number 11. And should not I spare Nineveh, that great city wherein are more than six or score thousand persons that cannot discern the right hand from their left? And a lot of animals too. Animal lovers always love the last verse of Jonah. A bunch of animals too. God cares about things that are meaningful. The human beings, not the animals so much, but the human beings are going to last forever. 
The gourd's not going to last forever. It's temporal. People are eternal. Jonah didn't do anything to give life to that gourd. God did everything to give life to those people. Doesn't God have the right to love the people of Nineveh? What a powerful, powerful message to a wayward preacher about learning how to care for people that you don't like, people that are different from you. You know, this is one of the greatest passages in the Bible against racial prejudice, against any kind of prejudice, prejudice for any reason. Doesn't God have the right to spare people, even the very people you don't like? even the very people you would prefer that they be judged. Charles Feinberg wrote a lot about the the prophets, the major and the minor prophets, published a lot during his lifetime. Books that are studied in Bible colleges. This is what he said. I put it in your worksheet there. God was saying to Jonah, if you became so attached to the gourd because it served you and gratified your desires... A gourd upon which you expended no thought or labor, no toil or sacrifice, no care, no planting, no watering, no tending, no pruning. A gourd of short duration which grows up quickly and hastily passes away. Shall I not permit my love and pity to flow forth unstintingly to multitudes of my creatures, the work of my hands, the crown of all my creative acts, nurtured and fed and provided for by me, those who will never go out of existence Feinberg said of God's argument, he said, was there ever such irresistible logic? Was there ever such boundless love and pity? We know not of any. We can be prone to anger when God doesn't live up to our expectations or when God does things that we would prefer him not to do. And yet God, the ever-wise, omnipotent God that he is, does what he does. And when we don't understand or agree with him, he asks us questions and he compares us to himself. And he says, don't I have a right to love people? So the lesson of Jonah is twofold. Learn to trust God. His ideas are always better than yours. And learn to care about people, even people that are different from you. That for whatever strange reason you don't like, love them like God loves them. Be like God, a compassionate, merciful God.